I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast. It is December, and I am once again here to ask you to support this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by becoming a podcast sponsor. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout out on the podcast. The only way to do it is to visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to make your donation. Cato accepts no government money. We depend on the generosity of our sponsors to help us advance the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support the Cato Daily Podcast and the Cato Institute. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. States in the U.S. vary widely in the relative intrusiveness of government. The Cato Institute's new edition of Freedom in the 50 States once again combs through the data to find how states are performing on a wide variety of metrics. The report's authors are Jason Sorens and Will Ruger. The report is available now. In uh, reading previous editions of this, the top five states sort of jump around a little bit. Uh, Who's number one? So this year, New Hampshire takes the top spot, uh, basically eclipsing Florida, which was number one in the fifth edition. And just so we understand very clearly, when do your measures start and end? Because this is a common uh, problem with a lot of these types of measurements uh, is that people will say, well, why don't you have data from this year? Yeah. Uh, and that's, of course, not how this kind of research works. Of course, there's an inevitable lag because it takes some time for some of the data to come out. Uh, we rely on government agencies for some of the uh, the data, like on tax and spending policies. So um, the data are as of year end 2019. So you can think of this as the state of freedom that was prevailing in early 2020. Uh, that's what we're, we're getting uh, with this ranking. If you don't mind, go ahead and round out the top five. Sure. Again, New Hampshire's number one, then Florida, Nevada, Tennessee, and then South Dakota. So those are the top five states in terms of freedom. What are the components that go into this? We've discussed this before, uh, but uh, do those components change over time? Well, in from addition to addition, we do try to improve the index and add new measures, but we maintain a consistent set of indicators so that people can compare how freedom changes. We go all the way back to the year 2000. Uh, so we have now uh, 20 years of data for every state, um, and we look at both economic and personal freedoms. That's the unique thing about this index. We have not just fiscal policies and regulations of business, but we also have regulations of people's private lives and lifestyles. So there was one measure that that jumped out at me uh, that you use. Uh, I don't know how you characterize it or, or qualify it, but the degree to which money that is raised by governments flows through the state capital. There are some states that have a very high proportion of the the, the total tax revenue that flows through the capital. How does that change uh, incentives? How does that change how states, how free they are? Yeah. So we look at how uh, state and local taxation are different. Uh, You might have a little more choice of local government than you do of state government. Um, So we look at how that varies by state. In some states, there are a lot of local governments. You have a lot of freedom of choice to choose where you live and accordingly your mix of taxes and services. So we make it so that if you live in a very centralized state, 
uh, with not many local governments, local taxes are basically the same as state taxes. But if you live in a highly decentralized state with lots of choice of local government, um, local taxes are worth not quite as much as state taxes with the idea there that, you know, maybe you're more comfortable with your local tax burden because you've you've chosen it in part. So that the exit costs in a state like that, the exit costs of a locally oppressive regime are lower than they would be in a state where all the money goes through the capital anyway, and it doesn't really matter what your uh, what you choose among counties. Yeah. And one of the great things about our federal system nationally is that people can vote with their feet. One of the great things about fiscal decentralization is that you don't have to necessarily leave a state uh, to vote with your feet on the local policies. And so it can escape some of that grassroots tyranny uh, that you might have at home uh, and, and uh, you know, without having to leave your state as a whole. What are the measures of freedom that you two have had to wrestle with that are, are more difficult uh, to deal with than others? I'm th- and I have some in mind, but you go ahead and tell me. I think one is the is the death penalty, which we have excluded since the beginning uh, of, uh, you know, this study, you know, 15 years ago. And we've wrestled with it for the last 15 years. Uh, and decided to exclude it uh, because I think there's you know, several different stories you can tell about whether it's an appropriate policy for the state to conduct. And you know, rather than fall on one side or the other or anywhere in between, we've decided to leave it out. That's one. Um, you know, but in terms of some of the things that we do include, obviously, you know, right to work laws are one that a lot of people might contest. And one of the reasons why we include it is because the Wagner Act puts the finger on the scale. Uh, of labor unions. Uh, And so that's one of the reasons why we include it, because you can come up with a story uh, for why right-to-work laws uh, would not be appropriate in a fully free society. Yeah. And I I think uh, when we look at um, right-to-work laws, we also make a recommendation for states. There is a way they can create these right-to-work laws in such a way that they respect freedom of association but the problem is, uh, because the federal government, through the Wagner Act, has essentially forced employers to negotiate with, uh, with unions. The vast majority of employers would prefer that uh, their employees not be required to pay agency fees uh, to a union, and right-to-work laws help uh, restore some of that that balance and that that freedom. What links the states that do particularly well? or particularly poorly? If you don't mind, uh, what are the bottom five uh, states overall? I, I, I have two in mind. Well, as you might guess, a lot of these states are, are, are fairly predictable. Uh, so a state like Oregon comes in at number 46. And then in, in, in terms of getting worse uh, on the measure of freedom, you have New Jersey, California, Hawaii, and then surprise, surprise, New York. And what is actually surprising about New York, perhaps, though, is just how much worse it is than other states when it comes to freedom. You know, Hawaii and California, you know, are not places where you would want to be if you really want to kind of uh, vote with your feet in terms of freedom. Uh, But New York is even worse by, you know, a a, a pretty wide margin. Uh, You know, New York is, is, uh, you know, there's this kind of mythology, I think, that a blue state is one that is, yeah, it's it's not uh, very fiscally, uh, you know, prudent, right? It's it's maybe more of a tax and spend state, uh, or in regulatory policy, it's fairly paternalistic, putting businesses under the thumb of 
of the regulatory state. Uh, but New York, uh, but that but that mythology suggests that maybe they're more personally free, right? They're they're socially liberal and fiscally and regulatory in in terms of regulatory policy liberal. But New York is bad on all three margins, right? It is not a place where the long arm of the law leaves you untouched. Uh, it reaches out in so many ways, whether it's into your pocket or into your, you know, bedroom, so to speak, right? It's a place that is really trying to kind of paternalistically uh, control, you know, individuals and their choices. Uh, and again, it's not Burma. It's not, you know, say a place like uh, Russia or uh, China. Uh, but it is a place that is significantly worse on freedom than other states. Who deserves the credit here? You can imagine that governors would love to be able to take credit for uh, the the policies of a state. But to the extent that states move up or down in rankings, that could be a long time in coming with House and Senate leadership, uh, you know, paving the way for uh, benefits. And, you know, who who gets the credit for a state being relatively free or not free? It's a good question. It's really a, a mix of factors and states change pretty slowly. We do find pretty strong evidence that red states do better than blue states on economic freedom. Uh, we don't find any relationship on personal freedom. And uh, and so we do find that states that, that move dramatically one direction or the other uh, can have changes in freedom, but they take a while to uh, to materialize. So West Virginia uh, became much more Republican, and that changed state government, started, has started to change their policies, but West Virginia is still number 35 in our index. Um, so they, they have done some things uh, that, have, that have moved them up on economic freedom, but, uh, but not a lot. Whereas Virginia and Colorado have gone the other direction. Um, they're still fairly high on our index, Colorado 12, Virginia 13. So um, so there's a as there's a change in public opinion, you get a change in in who controls state government, and that can have some effects on policy. Um, but usually, this is you know over any two to four year period, you're going to have a, a fairly small change. It's not going to dramatically alter the character of the state. Um, and so we we do want to hold uh, legislatures and governors accountable for how they behave with respect to freedom, because we think that does matter. And uh, and we hope that they do care about freedom. But we should also not expect miracles. We shouldn't expect a state to immediately turn around just because there's a new governor in town. So if somebody wants to poke through your report and uh, they don't particularly agree with your valuations of various aspects of freedom, what do you have to say to them? Well, one one thing we would say is, how do they define freedom, right? You know, we would define freedom as the ability to use your life, liberty, and property as you see fit, consistent with the equal rights of others, right? So it's that notion that, you know, my freedom extends to the end of my nose uh, or and, and to the end of yours, right? But the fact is, is that people are going to look at some of the policies and say, hey, I, I don't think that that is part of how I would define freedom or I don't agree with their judgment. The other thing is that we also include alternative indices in our appendix. Uh, so for example, we have three different abortion regimes uh, that you can look at uh, and that can help you understand what you think. If, you, if you're like, if you're very pro-choice, for example, or very pro-life, there are indices that take into account abortion, which is not in our main index. Um, that's one of those things that, is, again, is highly controversial, uh, even among libertarians. 
Uh, so you can do that. And then we also have uh, appendices that are related to whether you include or don't include right to work laws. Let me ask you this related to uh, the valuations here. Zoning. Some I can imagine a locality being particularly restrictive with your ability to use your property uh, in that locality. And yet uh, I hear from the Yimbis, hey, let's move zoning to the state capital, which you know are, could be another form of tyranny of having states do this, is uh, to the extent that we're going to have zoning, is it preferable that it be done at the local level versus the state level? Or does your does your index say anything about that? Our index doesn't say anything about that question specifically. We look at the overall stringency of zoning with a few different measures, and uh, and that's a negative for us. Um, now, we can have a debate about should zoning be abolished or is there some degree of, of zoning that's acceptable? Um, but I, I think uh, the vast majority of economists, as well as the vast majority of people who care about freedom and, and private property rights, realize that zoning laws right now in the country are uh, in in most of the country are are way too strict. And so uh, and and so it shows up in our index, and um, and you can and it's an important part of our index, and and uh, it makes sense uh, that within the range of policies we observe, it's a negative for freedom. Uh, and you know, in recent years, it's really been more states that have taken the lead in trying to to reduce the stringency of zoning regulation, especially for housing. Um, so that may give a little bit of, of fuel to those who think that uh, that this should be put up to the state level. On the other hand, um, we we do have to bear in mind the virtues of uh, local autonomy. Uh, it shouldn't be unlimited, but there is more choice of of local government than of state government and uh in some cases localities and cities also have been starting to realize that they need to provide at least a more flexible framework for land use regulation than they previously had i would say though that this is an area where libertarians i think can rightfully disagree um you know to what extent i mean in more than you know well beyond even just housing on other issues as well. To what extent should states preempt localities which are closer to the people? Uh, what To what extent should they be able to preempt these local laws? I think it's a fascinating issue, actually, because it's not obvious what the right answer is. Um, you know, We have some laws that are best done at the federal level. We have some that are best done at the state level and some at the localities. And, and where that ought to be done in relation to, say, housing policy or zoning, uh, I, I think is an interesting one. And, and Jason and I have had a lot of debates about this question, actually, uh, over the years, um, you know, particularly because localities are the people that, in theory, have to live with the choices that are made. Uh, you know, it's literally right in their backyard. Uh, and in some big states, right, those decisions are made potentially hundreds of miles away. I mean, it's a little bit different in a state like New Hampshire, where people live relatively close by the state capital of Concord. But you know, think about other states, California, Texas, uh, Alaska, Hawaii, where the state capital can be pretty far away from where people are actually having that lived experience. Well, yeah, we could say a similar thing about uh, the federal government and states with respect to occupational licensing. Right? So this is an area that states generally control, and most states are way too restrictive. Should we turn over occupational licensing to the federal government? Might not be such a great idea, even though it, it looks as if right now the federal government might not be as restrictive as, as states are. 
And the reason for that is that the states may, in some sense, take pressure off the federal government. And once that this becomes a federal role, over time, the interest groups put pressure on the federal government to become just as bad as the states are. And without the the virtues of diversity and and learning that we get from the variation among the states. Yeah. And in a state like Texas, where you see a lot of local spending, where kind of spending is actually fairly out of control, I think there's a lot of folks that would, would like there to be a greater state role there. But again, you know, how much do you want to give power to, say, Austin relative to these localities that in theory have to own with the, own the kind of results of their policymaking? And they can choose that kind of mix of, of benefits and costs, uh, I think. And, and again, it, it's, it's easy to say that when you're sitting here, uh, but when you're facing you know, this uh, 51-49 vote on some massive stadium uh, for your local high school and you have to pay those taxes, it's easy to, to hope for the state capital to come in and rescue you. So how does uh, – switching gears just a little bit, how does policing – how does that show up in your report? Uh, we look at victimless crimes arrests. That's the the main way it shows up. So we look at um, the drug enforcement rate, which is uh, essentially the percentage of drug users who are arrested <laughs> in a state in a given year. And we also look at arrests for other um, other things. And this is eighteen and over, um, gambling, prostitution, guns, liquor laws, uh, which does not include um, drunk driving and things like that, um, but simply like you know making making whiskey in a still or something like that. Um, so we uh, we count those as negatives and states that are that in general are more relaxed uh, about enforcing these laws uh, score higher on personal freedom. Well, Kentucky should have done better if uh, creating whiskey in a still and not getting busted for it were a measure on behalf of freedom there. Um, if you know if, if states, look at your index and say, gosh, how can we just do three or four? How can we leapfrog our neighbors uh, and just do a little better on this index? What What is the kind of change that a state could, again, keeping in mind political realities, what are some changes that states can make that would provide a big punch as far as your index is concerned? Well, one of the things that we do in the study is actually have a profile for each state. So we talk about all the different policies in a state, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and we also provide three policy recommendations for each state. So it's actually in this study, it's personalized to the state. So it's not so much like, hey, here's what every state could do because some states are already doing well. Uh, but we have one each for fiscal, regulatory, and personal freedom in terms of our recommendations. And even a great state like New Hampshire has things that could change, right? Uh, you know, So for example, it could pass a right to work law. Uh, you know that would be consistent in our view with right to free association. It's something that's almost happened in the past in New Hampshire, uh, and so our recommendations are trying to be realistic. We're, we're not asking for, say, New York to try to pass a right to work law. Uh, we're just asking for something that is p- potential, uh, and in some part, history helps us helps guide us there. Um, and and so every state's going to have something different. I mean, there there are some states, you know, for example, Florida doing fantastic on fiscal policy, but could really improve when it comes to personal freedom. Same thing with a state like Tennessee. Uh, And so we really try to round out recommendations that would improve on those margins where they're not currently performing. That being said, I think education, right? K through 12 education is an area 
where so many states could improve. I mean, I, I would prefer something like backpack funding where funding is tied to the individual student. Uh, and that would improve freedom a lot for people. And and that's a hot issue right now. So I think that there's going to be between the sixth and the seventh edition that will hopefully come out in a couple of years, uh, we would see, I think, a lot more movement in that area because I think parents, especially after COVID, are looking for uh, changes in this area. I was going to ask about that uh, with respect to school choice. Your measure this year, your index will not include all of the school choice measures passed in 2021, but you expect those to be in the next edition? That's right. Uh, so um, we, we should see some significant improvement there. In our state profiles, uh, we uh, note the major policy changes in every state. So you can take a look at that and uh, get a sense of how states are going to perform in the next edition. To the extent that people have had enough, uh, the notable example, of course, is California and the various states that people move to from California, given the high housing costs and uh, other restrictions on their liberties. Uh, what do we see and how well does it jive with your index that people are moving out of some states and moving into others? Yeah. So we see people moving from less free to freer states. We do this analysis in every edition of the index. And we consistently find the same thing. So it's Really, we've had some out-of-sample predictions here that have proven true, uh, and we even split this up into the 2000s and the 2010s. We find the same thing in both decades, controlling for all sorts of other things, including climate. Uh, we find that both personal and economic freedom uh, attract people uh, from other states. We also find an effect of economic freedom on income growth. For regulatory policy, this seems to work mostly through cost of living. Um, but we find some evidence that both fiscal and regulatory policy um, help states grow faster. Um, so looking at economic freedom at a point in time and then growth in the subsequent years, there's a positive relationship. Jason Sorens and Will Ruger are authors of the new Cato Institute report, Freedom in the 50 States, which is available now. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.